<laughs> Mr. Bruce Foreskin. Foreskin, that would be me. Oh my God, what a Freudian slip and a beautiful one. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I was ahead of myself. Uh, oh, wow. Guitar Wank, where have you been? There you go. Um, Mr. Foreman, welcome. Thank you for joining uh, us. It's good to be anywhere at this point. It is know? good to be anywhere, man. It's, um, God, man, I, it's, it's nuts. It's just nuts. We're, I'd like to do a dedication, um, with this guitar wank. We lost someone, uh, pretty amazing back in Australia. We lost a, an amazing guitar luthier, uh, Mr. Merv Cargill, who right. was an Australian legend in the guitar building and, Everything to do with guitars. Merv was an amazing man. He ninety one, and he he passed on his birthday. Well, imagine he's come into the world on his birthday and then left us on his birthday. So I guess you have a one in three hundred fifty six chance of that, right? He he yeah, went out. I mean, I I just want you know as, as I might have mentioned on a previous guitar wing. I don't know that I ever told this story, but as you know, um, I went to uh, to Australia. The reason you and I know each other in many ways is because of Tony Calabro. Yeah, the great Tony Calabro. And um, he he and I were friends back when I the web first started, and I started a forum back like around 1999 or something. And uh, he he would always, you know, he was my best guy. You know, he would always say really cool stuff and really be helpful and help me run the forum, you know, and respond to people. And we became just kind of fast internet pals. And then fast forward, I know you, you studied with him. And then, uh, and then I went over just what about a year and a half ago, I guess, yeah, two years ago. And um, I went and played down in your hometown and uh, hung out with Tony and uh, had a unfortunate mishap with my guitar. How did uh, that happen? Well, what happens is I had a, I have a really great system. Okay. <laughs> I have a Carlton case, which is kind of a big, strong, great. I mean, you know, because like particularly the Australian Airlines, they ain't going to let you bring a guitar on the plane. You know, so you're gonna have to check it. So the Calton case, if you're gonna check something, you know, the Calton or the Hoffy case, those are the two companies that really make the best cases, you know, that I know of. And uh, but they're heavy and they're a drag, and I'm used to carrying around my guitar in a, you know, in a gig bag, you know. So I bought like a cheap twenty dollar guitar center cover, basically. And, you know, I'm very careful of my guitar. So, like, as long as I'm flying, it's in the Carlton case. But the rest of the time, it's in this other thing. And, like, if I'm in a taxi cab, it's in my arms. You know, I mean, it never, I mean, it, there's no reason to worry about this. But uh, I get out of, I'm in Tony's house, get out of the car. I'm going to stay there for the night. And I've got it by the strap. And the, freaking strap comes off and the guitar just like from you know standing up against my body just fell over oh. tap, and he had like paver bricks right. you know his driveway yeah and um and it just went 
bang, face, I mean, just a total face plant, you know. <laughs> uh, and Tony was freaking out. I'm going like, well, you know, it's a good guitar. It'll probably be okay, whatever. And I played it, and it's like, it's fucked up. Oh, no. The low notes are all buzzing out. And then we kind of put, like, some paper underneath the strings, you know, underneath the nut to kind of raise them a little bit. And they, it got better. And then we realized when we were doing that, that the, the finger, there's a crack, you know, when the fingerboard meets the neck where it's glued together, it's separated there. And, and the low end, you know, the low E side from about the nut to about the third fret, it's got, there's this crack there. Oh. And so, and this is after the gig, you know, I mean, it wasn't real late on a Sunday night or something, but, uh, Tony calls Merv. Merv Coggle, yep. And Merv says, well, you know, I'm not doing much work, but my son James is. He's taken over the shop, and he's really great, you know. And, of course, Merv knows that. And he says, yeah. So uh, he calls James. He says, I got this guy. He's got this guitar, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, like we're in the world of iPhones, so I can take a picture of what the problem is. We send him the picture. He says, oh, that's no problem. I can, you know, yeah, we got this real fast setting glue. It's really, I don't have to take anything off. I can just, you know, it penetrates. It'll, you know, clamp it. It'll be done. No problem. I'll just bring it in tomorrow. And so uh, I was planning on taking a train from your hometown up back up to Melbourne. But where Merv lives is kind of like halfway between your hometown and Melbourne. Yeah. Or and where James was, where the shop was, and uh, I'm sorry I'm making this such a long story, but it, it means so much to me, and um, and so Mer and so Tony and Mary, his wife, to drive me up to to that place. We give James the guitar. He looks, oh yeah, no problem. Just yeah, go I go have lunch or whatever. You know, I'll be done in an hour or so. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then we we took Merv out to lunch and we went to one of those like i mean the closest thing in america we have to that is like a vfw kind of hall like a veterans hall oh like an this was the rsl i assume rsl oh, like yeah. veterans hall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's like a veterans kind of thing club yeah and, we and of course everybody knows merv and like the girls were all flirting with him and he's <laughs> just like the king of the kings and we had this lovely you know, this lovely meal where he's talking about working on Keith Richards guitars and made a guitar for Keith, you know, all these people, you yeah. know, he's just kind of just like, uh, you know, many people we would want to have on this show, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and like one we're about to have on this show. Yeah. And so, uh, and we get back and, you know, Merv, I mean, Merv was like 89 at that point because he died at 91. So it's yeah. like a year and a half ago, two years ago. And it was just a lovely afternoon. Get back, James. Oh, yeah, the guitar's ready. I played it. And I met that other Australian guitar player. What was his name? Really great player. Not Brett, but this, this blues guy. He was just great. You know, he shows up. And um, and I'm just sitting there playing my guitar, and and like, 
he'd said, well, you know, he's just, you know, I noticed that when I, when I put it all back together, you really kind of needed a setup. It's all kind of new now. And, you know, and it wasn't kind of right. <laughs> you know, it's like, and he says, so I just kind of gave you a setup. What do you think? And I'm like, damn, this thing feels as good, you know, as it's ever felt, you know, wow. it's like, thank you. So I played it for, you know, 20 minutes or 10 minutes and then left. And, and then Tony ended up driving me the rest of the way to, to Melbourne, but what like a magical day. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of, I don't know, there are people all over the world who would, you know, with makers like uh, Tom Rebecca or, or um, Carruthers or, you know, all these people who are just like, you know, world famous icons who actually had your guitar for a while and fixed it up and you got a chance to be in the inner sanctum and they took care of you. And it's this wonderful community of guitar and yeah. world. And uh, I'll never forget it. And actually, I mean, I can send you a picture of James holding my guitar after he worked on it. I'm sure I still have it on my phone somewhere. Oh, you have to send that. Anyway, I, we'll put it on, we can maybe put it on Facebook. Yeah, let's do it. Too. But uh, it, was, it was just, you know, a magical moment in life where it's just like, you know, you say to yourself, well, I guess things are working out okay, you know, because people are taking care of me, Yeah, you know, and this has nothing to do with me, you know. Yeah, I thought that was pretty special that you got to do that with ter- with Tony and Merv. And, uh, yeah, and so and now that. that I see, uh, here I'm sending it to you right now. Oh, cool. I'll have to post it. Boom. Tony shared with you me. I didn't know that Merv back in the seventies worked on Jimmy Page's pickup when he was on tour in Australia. One of his pickups right. well, that- and his Les Paul died and he fixed it and they could never work out why his Les Paul sounded so bloody good. Right. Right. And 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 I think Keith Richards too. Wow. I think Keith Richards like would send guitars to Merv from like all around the world to be worked on. And to be sent back. Yeah, yeah, and he was. I mean, it might have been, I might be wrong. It might have been Jimmy Page. Well, I know when Gibson later tried to do a reissue, and they couldn't work out who did the pickups, like who who made them the way they were, and and eventually they found out it was it was Merv Cargill in, so maybe, in Melbourne. Yeah, maybe I'm mistaken. It wasn't Keith Richards. It was Jimmy Page. Yeah. But, you know, I mean. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just there, there are geniuses all over the world, man. You know, and that's just what it is. Merv, I bought, I think I bought three guitars off Merv off over the years. And man, just, you know, I was young and I wanted the, the hottest, the greatest thing you could get. And he'd made me this custom guitar once with the, you know, it was like a metal guitar and it had scallop frets and all the things. And I ended up putting that into a fan, the, the headstock into a ceiling fan. And he oh. fixed all that and then... I had a Telecaster off him and and I didn't I had it for a couple of years and then I didn't really like it anymore and he took it back and he swapped it out for something else man he was he was just an awesome awesome guy just a real gentleman great man and uh we're going to miss him so uh right well you know hopefully we'll we'll see the likes of that in newer people because that's that's a that's a that's an old school thing yeah you know and, Pretty, pretty I mean, awesome. Think about it, you know, the, the multi, just, just the fact that, you know, here's this guy who 
at that point, he was in his probably his 50s, right? You know, 40s, 50s when you were dealing with him, you know, when you were a teenager. You know, and he still like treated you with respect, yeah. gave you what you wanted, was growing with the new thing and trying to figure out what needed to happen. You know, that's that's something we all need to aspire to. Um, he also worked on Joe's, Joe Pass's guitar when he was in Australia. He did all his fret work on Joe's guitar and they loved it. You know, Joe, as I, you know, as, right. as I mentioned many times, Joe didn't give a shit about much, you know. So if, if a guy like that got his hold, his hands on Joe's guitar, much like James got his hand on my guitar, he says, you know, this isn't quite right. <laughs> right. And Ike Isaacs, he used to work on Ike's guitars. So, yeah, I got six, right? Yeah, and, you know, but he was he was like way down in Sydney, over in Sydney, man. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So that was like, I mean, now that's telling you. I mean, for 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 those of you Americans that don't know your Australian geography, <laughs> that's like going to Houston from New York City. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's that's how big a deal it is. You know. So um yeah, so I'd like to dedicate this one to Merv Cargill and Tony Clobro and just um sure. sending sending our wishes and all the best and to all the people that are going that are missing and losing loved ones at the moment because all the shit we're going through. Yeah, no words, man. There's no words. It's just tunnel, tough time. Yeah. Tough time. Um, we've got an amazing guest tonight, which I'm super excited about. Uh, the amazing John Pizzano, who. Of course, did a lot of work with Joe Pass and and so many others, and we get to hang with um, John, so that's exciting. Before we get into that, um, I wanted to catch up with you about you've been. <laughs> there's nothing slowing Mister Foreman down. You've been doing besides your normal sticks. You're doing on Instagram. You're doing the masterclass videos. Uh, you're still teaching. Um, You've you've written another book and you've gone in a different area again. To, I want to hear more about the book. I'm we're on um, the pages at the moment with the book. We've been reading are it to Cressy. Reading, are you reading it right now to Cressy? We've we've started it. So um, oh, well, have you stopped it? Is the question. Well, with she's five years old, so we're in and out. But she's she, it's keeping her attention, which is good for a five year old because you said it's more more for yeah. an older, right? Okay, I guess I should, you know, give everybody, okay, yeah. Um, those of you who might know, I've written novels. Only only one has been published, which is available as an ebook. You know, if you're just looking around or if you contact me, I can give you a physical copy. Um, there are, of course, adult novels. Well, what happened to me uh, just, I might have mentioned over, over one of the blanks before, but I don't think I did. Around just before Christmas, we were abducted. <laughs> In other words, uh, a duck adopted us. We were just sitting here minding our own business, and a duck flew into our backyard. We have like we have a dog, and we have a fenced-in yard, kind of, but we live in the country, and we have a lot of water features, you know, fountains and stuff, and we have a lot of bird feeders. We love birds. We have no cats, so the birds are all safe here and it's you know it's really just kind of a aviary it's really great and sure enough like boom this big ass duck shows up or goose we didn't know what it was uh 
it was a big white, black and white kind of Tennessee tuxedo. It almost looked like a penguin kind of duck. And, um, and we, uh, we put a picture of it on next door, you know, that like Facebook for neighborhood things. And we said, is anybody missing this duck or goose, whatever? <laughs> and sure enough, we live in a canyon and some people way high on the ridge above us raised these ducks. And one just got away and came all the way down to us and, and it was there. And so this woman says, yeah, it's our duck. You know, it's a Muscovy duck and da 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 And then we can look it up on Google and find out about the breed, whatever. And, uh, and she came down to get it, you know. And uh, for three days, she came like a couple times a day. And the duck wasn't going for it. The duck wasn't going back. And, of course, it might have something to do with the fact that we were giving it carrots and strawberries and apples and grapes. But, you know, I mean. I mean, she'd come and she'd shake her little, you know, can of the duck food, you know, and she expected the duck to come running, you know, and like the duck's kind of <laughs> looking at her like, lady, I'm here eating strawberries. Don't bug <laughs> Right. And we have, we have a house that also has a very low roof, you know, and, and a carport that has a low roof. My, my music studio has a low roof. So there's lots of places for her to kind of easily get up on and be safe. And so she kept trying to catch it. it. Didn't work. After about the third day, she was just kind of frustrated, as she, you know, as I would be. And she said to us, "Do you want to keep this duck?" And we said, "Yeah, except for we're not going to build a duck house or anything, and we're not going to, you know, I mean, it's going to, it's just got to live here. You know, we'll feed it. We love it being around here, you know. And we've got this dog that's kind of a." bird dog so you know they're gonna have to work it out but whatever and um and she said like oh no problem if a fox or a mountain lion gets it that's just what it is you know it's okay i'm not gonna you know and she brought us a nice christmas gift you know to kind of you know i mean it's like giving a person a pet is like giving a person a cell phone you know it's like something that's going to cost them money for <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah. you know but she and she was really cool about it and, and we're really happy to have this duck so i walk every day i'm up in the mountains you know with my dog and, and it just came up this idea of wow the story about this duck and my dog and how they they have the same markings basically they're both black and white look kind of like head waiters at a fancy restaurant and so um I uh, kind of came up with these ideas for stories and I called this friend of mine uh, who's a great saxophone player and an illustrator. I said, Hey, let's make these YouTube videos of, you know, this duck and this dog and, you know, like da 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 da. And we can play the music and we'll have a bunch of fun. And, and luckily, this guy, he has an eight year old kid or a seven year old kid. And he said to me, he says, You know, it's like, that's great and everything, but look, I've got this kid and I read books to him every day and I know you write books. And like, and he told me about some really great books that he's read to his kid. He says, you know, these books they're making into like movies and TV shows and they're bestsellers. He says, I think instead of us making a bunch of free videos <laughs> yeah. and doing a shit ton of work that may or may not go viral, I think you should just write a story and then get a book going and then we can, I can illustrate it and then we can like sell the movie rights or the TV show. And then we really got a job and everybody <laughs> will pay us for it. So 
wow, that sounds like a good idea. So, I mean, I had this, a story in my head and I sat down and I wrote it. And you are one of the um, beta testers, yeah. you know, testing it out on kids of various ages. Of course, it's also written for kids who never grew up like me, you know, um, full of allegory. I mean, I, I just wrote it as if I was telling a bedtime story to a kid somewhere between five and 10 years old. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, you know, the kind of thing where I didn't dumb it down. I used adult words, expecting the kid to go, what does that mean? And explain it to him or talk about the situations and create conversations, you know, in the context of the book. I mean, that to me is, I remember being read to it and that, you know, my father or my mother would read me a story and I'd ask her questions and she'd explain to me things about life or what a word means. And, you know, that was part of the learning to love to read and learning to want to know more about the world. So, so I wrote this story and uh, now I'm just kind of getting feedback from my friends who have kids to kind of do the final thing before I, I don't know, go in the world and look for an agent or whatever you do. I don't even know. Uh, and if any of our listeners have kids that they read to that might want to be part of this focus group or somebody who might know an agent or a publisher, even better, you know, help me out here. I mean, I'm happy to share it. All they got to do is go to bruceforman.com, bruceforman at yahoo.com. That's the email. And I'll be happy to send you a PDF of the story and you can read it to your kid and give me feedback about what your kid thinks about it. You know, and um, man, this is this is this is it's a great it's a great thing. My point is, it's a great thing for now, because I mean, I'm still playing and practicing and doing all this stuff and teaching. But, you know, I mean, writing is a great solitary if I'm locked in my house and I can't go out and visit my friends and I can't go on the road and I can't go play a gig. This is a you know another really great place to spend creative energy for me. This is what I love about you, Bruce. I mean, and 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 I think with you and a lot of other players have spent their whole life gigging. This whole pandemic has been a huge like shock to the system because you're not gigging and you're at home and that. But you're never one to sit around and just do nothing. You are a, you're a renaissance man, mate. I mean, you jump on new ideas. You're always thinking of ideas. I mean, you went and did another um, My Music Masterclass video that's out. Um, yeah. You go write this book. You're doing your Instagram things. I mean, you're an inspiration that you just, you're always throwing around ideas and seeing what's going to stick and you're having a go. And the book, man, I mean, we're only halfway through it, but I'm enjoying it a lot and it's it's an awesome book. So. I can't wait for it to be illustrated and everything else to go with it. It's exciting stuff. Good for you. you. Good for you, you, man. I don't know where it's going to go. It's like, frankly, I'm so used to so many things, you know, like you say, you throw it against the wall and see what sticks. I'm so used to living with Teflon walls. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, you know what? You're doing it. You're not sitting around and just doing nothing. I mean, I know you're playing your ass off. You're playing a gazillion hours all the time, but you're doing all these other things and you've become an amazing chef. Like you've gone down that road as well. Uh, you know, I got to eat, you yeah. know, so might as well 
Another great thing about, you know, as, as I've talked about on many shows, you know, I've always been a food snob in terms of like on the road, you eat what, I mean, you got to put good fuel in the tank. That was something that was taught to me very early by a lot of the guys I hung out with. It's like, whatever you do, you know, you know, you're going to be stressed out. You know, you're not going to get enough sleep. You know, you're going to be hanging hard on the road. So the one thing you can control is make sure you put good fuel in the tank. Yeah. And so I've, I've had the fortune of eating in great places all around the world. You know what I mean? So I kind of know what I'm going for. And while I, I can't possibly tell you that I'm matching that, I'm striving for it. And, of course, with YouTube, you can get – a lot of insights from those very people who I've eaten at their restaurants. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So, so I am really working it hard and, you know, and I mean, and, and loving doing it because I've got time and I'm at home. What, tell us, hold it. Tell us about the, my music masterclass video too. What did you do there? Okay. The most recent one is I call it cutting the cord. (laughs) Okay. it's C H O R D the chords, right. and a lot of a lot of people have been you know just sort of asking me to do a thing on chord melody on my way of like that big band style chord playing and and my way of using chords and you know I admit that I have a, a rather unique way of doing that and so I um sort of re deconstruct and reconstruct how I approach using chords in the context of playing the guitar, whether it be in a rhythm section or whether it be just playing solo, you know, just how to use, you know, how to really step-by-step get to a place where you can turn it into your own thing. I'm not really trying to show you what I do. Although in this one, I actually do have a section in it called raw meat Right. <laughs> okay. Which, which is just a total lick thing. I just show like these are some basic licks that will get you started. If you do this, you know, that's kind of what gets me going. You know right. what I mean? That these were the things that really kind of unlocked the door to get to the next place. Wow. But it, it's all about like comping and and accompanying yourself and harmonizing lines and utilizing different harmonic passages, whether it be parallel harmony or, or progression style harmony or diatonic harmony and how that all works and what it sounds like and ways to practice it. So I'm really proud of it. It's, it's my 13th, my music masterclass uh, video. And uh, I'm really, you know, I mean, I made it here in my little shed. It's not the most uh, high quality as, as none of, you know, particularly the last few that I've made here. I mean, I had to make it with a front facing camera, you know, cause I needed to see what I was doing. And so there's, there's some, it's not the highest quality uh, production, but it's, it's not what it's about. I mean, it's like 10 bucks, you know what I mean? Uh, that's it. I think it's 10 bucks. Yeah. I think it's 10 bucks to download it for a week and 20 bucks to have it forever. How long, how long is the video? It's an hour practically. Man, you can't. 
You know what I mean? That's ridiculous. You'd have a, an hour lesson with Bruce Foreman for 10, all 20 bucks. That, all of them. My music masterclass. You got to go check them out. 13. That's amazing. Right. And so I'm real proud of it. I mean, I think it's really good information. I've been having really great uh, feedback. You know, and then of course there's there was one guy who wanted more, you know, wanted more detail, and I'm like thinking, God, I had to cover all this material in 45 <laughs> minutes. This is take a fucking lesson, dude, you know, or transcribe. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's that easy. Well, I mean, I played it all for him. Now, you, well, the great thing is you can watch the videos, buy them at mymusicmasterclass.com, grab Bruce's videos, but then you want to go to the next level and you want to talk to Bruce. You do Skype lessons or Zoom lessons. You do that Zoom, now. Zoom, Skype, anything. Yeah, FaceTime, yep. you know, Facebook Messenger. Yeah, whatever people need. You know, I mean, the truth is, and this is hard to admit, you know, it's, uh, and maybe our guests coming up will share some of the feeling of this. Maybe he won't. Uh, you know, I, I mean, somehow in a blink of an eye, I've become kind of an older guy, you know, uh, I've had, uh, shit, you know, over 40 years of experience, like damn near 50. Yeah. Uh, years of experience doing this music, you know, and studying this music and being around play the guy, guys who really play it, you know? And so, um, and I love to teach I, for many reasons. One, I love to help people, but two, because it helps me learn it better. Right. I mean, there's, there's so many things about it. That's great. But the truth be told, I'd rather be playing. Okay. But I also realize my value to the world is far more as a teacher than as a player. I just really, you know, like for every person I help, it's exponentially better for the world than me just playing for somebody. Uh, it's hard to f admit that. It's hard to, to, to feel that because no one wants to kind of become, you know, no longer the fighter or the guy playing on the field to be the coach. Any, you know, no one wants to, no one really wants to make that transition. I mean, at least I don't. Right. I think of myself as a player, not as a, but teaching is something I love to do, and I feel like it's important to do, and I feel like my value to the world is really there. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm still the heart of a player. I can't help it. Yeah, yeah. And um, so this is just what it's about. You know, I mean, I want to – Share people. I want people to know where this all came from, how I got it. So maybe if it helps them and it helps them to help other people and it keeps this all going, something that I've dedicated my life to that I love so much, you know, yeah. I mean, it's that's all, you know. I mean, I don't have a dog in the fight. I mean, it's just like if it works out great, if it doesn't, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. I mean, I can only do what I can do, yeah. But I really, yeah, this is, this is a thing, you know, and it's a hard thing. Yeah. Getting old is not for pussies. <laughs> it's not, man. It's, um, 
I think there's probably a lot of people right now dealing with such heavy shit and heavy loss and it all gets all real when we have to face death and we have to face the fact of losing friends and loved ones. Shit gets real. Yeah. And um yeah, man. It's you I think we've got to I know for me I just you got to tell people you love them and you know you always think of maybe the last conversation you have with someone right and, and you know boy that has the gravity of you're right the gravity of that has never been you know i mean of course you know wait till you get a little older you know then then it gets even more so yeah you know? oh for sure but the fact is, is is you're totally right you're totally right and you know like we started with merv you know and and luckily we have john here you know not not to go into a morbid place but john is 90 years old and he's gonna i mean i know john he's gonna just share with us you know just so many insights and so many experiences and 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 you will hear because i just i talk to him every week you know i call him you will hear the spirit of a child yeah this is Peter Pan. This is the kind of guy that if you have a new core, a new set of chord changes for Stella by Starlight, he's going to make you come over or he's going to come to your house right now yeah, to find out what it is. Yeah. You know, and that's the beauty of all this. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty special, man. It's all pretty, pretty special. Well, let's bring on John. Um, I love you, man. And love you too. I sure miss you, man. And I know. you know, read that book to your daughter, you know. I know I will. You know, she uh she needs to hear about Daphne's awesome adventure, you know. <laughs> I will do, man. Uh we'll do an, another guitar wank soon. I'm gonna edit this tonight and get it out straight away. As always, sir, it's a pleasure and an honor. And I'm gonna go buy that video because uh I need some chord work. Uh, I think that would open up you some know, doors. I mean I mean Here's the deal, you know, if your playing makes you feel like you need a gin and tonic, you ought to try something multiphonic. <laughs> Love you, Bruce. I'll see you next time, mate. All right, man. See you later. See you, buddy. Bye. You're in. He said you're in. You're coming in now. I don't have any picture yet. Well, it'll, it'll come happen. in. There, uh, it here is. Goes. there it goes. Then, then I think you just... There you are. Right. Hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought we be, I, I thought we weren't going to be on camera. Well, we we're on camera for us, but not for the rest of the world. I would have dressed myself up a little. Well, you know, you look pretty good compared to the rest of us, John. Well, you know, I. <laughs> How's well, it going, John? John Pisano. Pretty good. Yeah. Who's that? Who's that? Troy. That's Troy McCubbin. Oh yeah, no, I heard the another. Oh, it's just an echo. Oh, that's my wife. <laughs> if you can hear, okay. That's What's my wife doing in your house? <laughs> <laughs> wow, man, how are you? Um, I don't know, my uh, if I can get a little vo more volume. More volume? You need more volume for us, Bruce? You talk. Hello, how are we? Well, you're a little in the distant. Um, okay, well, because I'm just talking to my dog right now. I'll yeah. get close. I'll get closer. I'm close now. 
Okay. How you doing, John? Well, I'm doing pretty guy, good for uh, a guy that's uh, in in jail. You know? well, we're all in jail. But let's let's not get uh, into uh, the depression of it all. Let's talk about the good times that are we're looking forward to when go. all the jazz clubs open up and there'll be bundles of work. You know. Wow! Really? Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. Because you, know, the, I, I hate to tell you this, there wasn't before. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I would say. Yeah, all of the clubs that open up, the two of them will open up again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Well, it's uh, it's certainly been a hard year. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, what can I say? Well, say something, you know. Have you, John? You've you've still been teaching. Uh, well, yeah, for the college, but most of the students have dropped out because they're they're not on campus. So, uh, a lot of them live up Northern California and other locations, you know. Right. So as a result, they're they're not close enough. What they normally do is come to the house, you know, which uh, is the way I, I've been teaching at uh, Cal State for at least 12 years. And that's the way it always was, you know. And uh, there, there are times that I would go out there uh, to help out some of the students that maybe had a problem getting back and forth. But now I'm one of those students because I... I don't. I. I, I'm, I can't drive anymore. You know. Well, and it's not smart to go anywhere at the moment, right? It's what? It's not very smart to go anywhere right now. It's better to stay no. at home. Yeah. So nobody's. Uh, yeah, and nobody's living on campus or near the campus like they would normally to attend classes. So anyway, uh, uh, I I would have had about five or six students, which, which is nice. You know, I, I enjoy teaching. Uh, and uh, I love the students, you know, I, and uh, it kind of keeps me on my toes too, you know, because <laughs> yeah. there's not a playing, not, not a lot of playing going around. Now, uh, John, did you recently have a birthday? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, February 6th, I, I turned 90. 90? 90. That's, 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 six, that's 630 in dog years. <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> now, John, John, tell me, do you, do you look at life and go, like, I, I just can't believe I'm 90. I can't believe I'm at this age now and it's, what what's your thoughts as a ninety year old and and looking back on your career and everything does it is it does it just keep going like a blink of an eye because I mean I'm forty nine and I feel like it's just been a blink of an eye too. Uh, well, it's funny. I've been trying to organize uh, because I have so much time now, and looking at my collection of junk through the years, and you know, and. Uh, programs and books and photographs and boy 
all I can say is I had, I've had a, a wonderful life, you know, and uh, I'm still wanting to, uh, to play. Uh, I, I, I mean, it, uh, it's terribly missed, you know, getting together with the guys and, and playing and that, that part of it, just that feeling that you get, you know, yeah. when you're playing with another person and now you can't even do it on, uh, you know, on, on the tube, uh, with the, with the latency problem, you know, and that makes it even more difficult. At least if we had that, uh, it'd be a little bit, but I'm looking forward to them, uh, getting that underway. Uh, that'll be a start. But uh, no, I uh, going back to the the days, and I was looking over a tour that I did with Chico Hamilton. That was quite a while back, you know. And uh, we were in Europe about a month, and you know, doing that jazz circuit. And I don't know if they do. Do they still do that, Bruce? Uh, well, I mean, of course not now. I mean, there's you know, but I mean. Yeah. So I mean, was it the festival circuit in the summer? You mean, or was it like the club circuit? No, it's a, a, a festival in some clubs that. Oh yeah, would, yeah, yeah. I, but, I think that's still kind of going on. You know, I mean, was right up until the end. You know, for the up and coming bands and stuff. I mean, I did one. I did that too in the eighties yeah. when I was with Richie Cole and then with Bobby Hutcherson. We did a bunch of. You know, we'd go and do like a month in Europe, all the various festivals. Yeah, yeah. And um, of course, now they're not doing it. I don't know that whether they were doing it before, because basically, I'm not part of it either. So, um, but yeah, that those were quite a, an experience, weren't they? I mean, it was, oh yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm just thinking about you know what I saw the other night. I mean, I have to tell you. I was watching TV and I saw jazz on a summer's night, you know, the oh, yeah. the movie about the 1958 Newport jazz festival that yeah. Louis Armstrong and Anita O'Day and Jimmy Jufri's band with Jim Hall. And of course you with Eric Dolphy and Chico Hamilton. Yeah. And there was like Chuck Berry at the end, you know, and, right. the, and he sat, yeah. he sat in with like Louis Armstrong. No, it wasn't Louis Armstrong, but it was Louis Armstrong's band. It was Papa Joe Jones and a bunch of other guys. Yeah, ev everybody was there. I mean, uh, yeah. there, there were so many great artists and what a hang that was, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, for, for you wankers out there, you can get it on YouTube. It's called jazz on a summer's night. Yeah. I have a, or a summer uh, day, something like that. It's a 1958 and it's that, that famous uh, Anito Day doing T for two, right? Really slow. Or was it Sweet Georgia Brown? Sweet Georgia Brown. Sweet Georgia Brown, really slow, getting faster, you know, and she was just so dynamic along with, of course, Pops. And you, you know, you were you were so young playing that D'Angelico guitar. Right. Do you still have that guitar? Uh, no, I, I, I sold that uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, and uh, I see it occasionally. Uh, the guy that bought bought it brings it into town every once in a while. And oh, cool! Yeah, it was a it it, it, it was a very good guitar, but it wasn't like a 
as good as Ron Anthony's. You know, his guitar yeah, had yeah. a beautiful acoustic sound. Now, at the time, I was studying from Chuck Wayne, and uh, and Chuck was always getting uh, putting together some ideas. And uh, D'Angelico, I remember one time he had to eliminate feedback. They they built a guitar that was filled with the pool top, you know, the green material, oh, and it was filled with yeah. that on, on the inside. Of course, it's still there was still feedback, you know. <laughs> but uh, so what uh, the guitar that I had built, I wanted because I was so influenced by Chuck and with good reason, you know, he was an amazing, amazing player and teacher and every, everything else, you know, and, uh, it, it, uh, it, uh, let's see, I forgot where I was going with that. That's what oh, happens. Talking to D'Angelico. The yeah. D'Angelico. Yeah. So I had it built and I just told John, I said, just, uh, I, I want exactly what Chuck had, you know, <laughs> and, and it turned out it had extra, uh, extra baffles inside and it didn't, you know, it had a great sound. It played great, but it didn't have that thing that hits your gut, you know, right. yeah. uh, but I kept it for many years. And then finally, uh, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but he, picked it up uh and and wanted to buy it and i you know i figure well it's time to let it go you know yeah yeah so, man, it's so great to see you on that movie you know at that time you know yeah it was eric, eric uh, dolphy on that one too yeah eric dolphy was there and fred katz yeah freddie yeah and uh i mean you know and even there were there were times like where I guess you guys were staying in a house or something there in New Yeah, that was actually, it It was part of the complex and it was like one area and, and a lot, and rooms, you know, a lot of rooms. Yeah. I don't, but we, we each had, we had, you know, good privacy and rooms and shared maybe a bathroom or something like that. I know because part, part of the movie kind of like, you know, before, like they kind of made you feel like you were there. And so like the morning starts and there's nothing really happened at the festival. Then they take you over to the musician's housing and Fred is over there, like playing a Bach cello suite practicing in the morning. Yeah. yeah. yeah Freddie. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's part, that's in the movie. That's in that whole vibe of that is in the movie. It's a really, it's a great, it's a great movie. And, you know, it's so great to see you in it and, you know, I guess you had told me that Jim Hall had moved to play with uh, Jimmy Jufri's band, and that's how you ended up with Chico, right? Isn't that what you told me once? Well, before that, yeah. I I, I actually came out here to to take his place. He was working with Chico at the time. Right. And, uh, and I actually... Chico had never heard me play. Paul Horn was on the band, and we had worked together. And Paul recommended me, and and Chico didn't make any commitments, but he uh, he flew me out here, and you know I I yeah. stayed and played and rehearsed with him, and and then uh, he uh, I got the gig, you know. Right, but and but the thing is, is Jim Hall is on that movie too, but he was playing with 
Jimmy Jufri's band, which is why he left Chico, right? To play with Jimmy Jufri. Uh, that was one of his first, uh, yeah, he, he, he worked uh, He worked with Jimmy Jufri. And it was interesting. I don't think that it was immediately after, it was several months, but I remember he had a regular gig with Jimmy Jufri someplace. Uh, I can't imagine where it was like, those those hills going out to uh, well anyway it, it was like a come in those days uh, they had these outside jams and stuff in the afternoon and I guess uh, they were just doing a duo and and uh, uh, Jimmy Jeffrey called me a couple of times after Jim. Hall left, and I, I I did a couple of gigs with him there. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. Those records that they did were great. Um, first one was with uh, wasn't Ralph Pena? What was his name? The bass player. Um, it was Jim Hall and Jimmy Jufri, and I, I think Ralph Pena is the guy. I know his son. So I know him, I'm missing, whoever the bass player was. And then eventually it took Bob Brookmeyer joined that band. Yeah. And they made those records. And then, of course, Jim went on to do other things. Yeah. You know, but I mean, it's so interesting that there you are, you know, with Chico and Jim's on this movie, too, with Jimmy Jufri. Yeah. I mean, it's a really wonderful moment in history. Of course, 1958, which is, you know, a big year for jazz, as it was 1959. Yeah, well, you know, jazz was at its peak around that time, or uh, it it wasn't really at its peak because the years before uh, were were there was more jazz around. I remember when I came out here, which was in uh, about nineteen fifty fifty six, I believe, when I came out to join Chico. I remember that. Everyone was complaining because there was no work. <laughs> you know, if they were around today, they really have. <laughs> yeah, that was that. That was a joke then. But I remember locations long after that. There were so many jazz clubs around. You know, there was a right right down on Ventura Boulevard here. There. There, there weren't jazz clubs, but they, they always had, you know, like Bobby Troop worked at the bowling alley there and Julie London came in. She, she worked there for a while. And then uh, Al Viola had taken a job, but he, he couldn't, he was busy in the studios. And, and I, I wound up taking over the, the gig there with them. Uh, anyway, there was so much going on. So like I say, looking back, uh, I had some great experiences and uh, I appreciate that, you know, Yeah, but I, I want to, I want to do it more. <laughs> but I mean, when you think of 1959, I mean, you had kind of blue came out, giant steps was recorded. Brubeck's record with time out, you know, that had take five and blue Ronda a Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, goodbye pork pie hat from Charlie Mingus, uh, yeah. the shape of jazz to come from Ornette, you know I mean? It was just like such an amazing year for jazz, you know. Yeah. And, uh, well, 
And in the 1958 Newport Festival was kind of almost like the, in, to my mind, like a set, a catalyst for what was about to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, well, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I was in, I fought for your country. I was in the Air Force. <laughs> I was, I was in the Air Force for four years. Wow. And, and that was uh, in 1951. Well, 19- yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a long time ago. It's uh, a long nine- no, but it's a long, steady gig when you think about it, right? Yeah, and it was. It turned out at the at the time that I joined, there was no authorization for guitar because you know they brass instruments and you know. Uh, and I had I went into one one band in in Detroit, and wound up playing mostly uh, bass and bass drum. I was great at bass drum. I could keep the time. I felt like Freddie Green of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would hold those suckers back. They were all rushing, you know. And I just bam, you know. And I would be real steady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah to control a whole marching band it gives you a feeling of strength you know and, and i and i knew that i had control because <laughs> i had a pretty good time you know or at least i thought i did i still have good time you know? yeah that's john main, john tell main. me when when did you and pass how did you enjoy pass meet and tell us some of the antics that you guys because it sounds like you guys colorful characters what kind of trouble you guys used to get into and how did you guys first meet uh well it was interesting after because my memory is uh, you know is is bad now but it was really bad then too the same way <laughs> i just couldn't remember things so one day i was with joe i don't know where we're working and i said joe how did how did where how did me we meet you know and i and he said, he said, oh, don't you remember? You called me to sub for you. <laughs> <laughs> I I was working with, uh, do you remember? I don't know if you guys, it's before both of you guys, Paige Cavanaugh. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, piano player. Well, I that was another gig that Al, Al Viola turned me on to, and I did a lot of work with him. And, they, and the gigs then were not just one night, you know, but you'd work here at the bottom of the hill and well, you do like a couple of weeks, four or five nights a week, you know, and they had three clubs right, right down at the Laurel Canyon and Ventura Boulevard. And then over in Burbank, there was a, another three or four, you know, they're all, they're all folded up. I, Charlie Terenza got, you remember Charlie Terenza? Well, I know who he was. I don't yeah. remember. Well, he wound up taking over one of those places because he had a, uh, he had an, another jazz club that he probably he 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 owned and he he built the thing with his own hands, just about you know, and that was really popular for uh, for for a long time, and that was kind of north. I can't remember the area, but it's really far north, just about north from here, you know, uh, where I live. And uh, 
I, in fact, I have a picture that got famous on, on the tube. Uh, uh, it's a photograph of, of Joe Pass, Tommy Tedesco, and uh, is this uh, a picture of Frank, Frank 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 Zappa. Frank Zappa, yeah, I remember. Probably, yeah, that. yeah. And uh, and Charlie was in the picture. Uh, was that at, at uh, Viva Cant? No, was that that Mexican restaurant? Right? Was that where is that? I don't know. It was an Italian restaurant. Italian you know? restaurant. Yeah, because yeah, Charlie. I mean, literally built it. I mean, he used to he used to work during the day with you know hammers and <laughs> and go at night and 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 play, you know. Uh, but that was strange the way that happened because we were supposed to meet uh, Diadario. Uh, it was around the time the, the Nam show was going on, and uh, and Joe and I were at the Nam show. Just uh, oh yeah. I, I just found the badge. I didn't have a ticket, a, a badge to to, uh, to go into the Nam show. So everybody recognized Joe. So he he got the badge, and I I just saw it the other day. I have it on bulletin board. It says, uh, like as if I was his son. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Joe Joe Pass Jr. Yeah, <laughs> I, I still have the best. Well, anyway, uh, we had we had uh, 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 going back to the club, Cherenza's Club. It's it was uh, the name of the club was Pasta Michi. Pasta Michi. Pasta Michi, and he had that club for at least five, six, seven years. I don't know what went on. And, and he didn't have uh, jazz there. He just had, you know, good Italian food. And he had, he had guitar players coming in. There was always, everybody was there playing all the time. So we, that's when we got with, the, with Zappa. Uh, and uh, we wound up trying to play a blues together. And Tommy was playing. Uh, so the three of us were playing with Zappa and, you know, <laughs> playing the blues. <laughs> it's a good combination. You know? How many, how many years were you and Joe Pass together? How many years were you, were you guys doing the rounds together? Well, you know, I, I did, I, over a period of time, I did, uh, uh just a, a over uh, a dozen albums with him, you know? Yeah. Um, but we started, uh, I think, uh, the four, four Django album uh, for uh, Dick Bach, you know, he, he owned Pacific Jazz and it's a it's world Pacific. But uh, uh, we actually did an album before that, uh, Joe, Joe and I with, uh, but you know what it was? Dick Bach always naturally wanted to do something that would connect to the people naturally. So that people would want to buy whatever the product was. And that when the 12 string 
started appearing on on every record, you know, like 12 string guitar, the sound, you know. And so we uh, we, we wound up, uh, he wound up doing a 12 string album acoustic and Gib Gibson sent us two, two uh, uh, acoustic guitars to to do uh, do the album. So that was, but that was done about six months before the For Django album, and that I don't know what year that was exactly. What year would that be? What year would that be? Can you? Remember? No, that's what I'm saying. I can't remember exactly. It probably around '62 or something like that. I don't yeah. know. It, it might have been around that time. And so Joe and I did a lot of gigs. We even, we worked at, at Dante's together before Herb Ellis joined him later on and, and started, uh, they did a, a, a trio thing there. But uh, I worked on and off with Joe and did some touring with him. And then I then I joined uh, Herb Albert, so I could make some money, you know, <laughs> and uh, and that was another that was another great experience. And I had uh, we wound up doing a lot of, you know, playing for the Queen and and wow. and playing at Carnegie Hall and and doing all that and and at the White House, you know, that was a big a big band at the time. Who was oh, who was the president? Uh, well, it was between, I uh, was Eisenhower around that time. Well, no, it probably would have been, you know, I mean, Kennedy came in in 60. So I would bet it would have been Kennedy or Johnson, right? I mean, Herb Alpert, Tijuana Brass didn't really get hot till the 60s, right? Well, I don't remember Kennedy. I remember. It would have been Johnson, perhaps, or Nixon. It might, yeah, it was Johnson. I remember now because he was uh, he was around like when we we were playing and did a show and everything and he was hanging around and suddenly he said I'm tired he had, and there's a lot of people there so he had to he wanted to get get upstairs and and go to bed you know? <laughs> so he split <laughs> but yeah it was Johnson I remember that now. yeah what but uh, and that I I stayed with Herb for. Well, I worked. I, I was with him for four, almost five years, and wound up. Uh, Herb wanted to keep, you know, keep me with the band, and so he uh, used to give me uh, uh, a tune, or sometimes a tune and a half on those albums, and they were all million sellers, you know. Wow! And I'll never forget the. The first time Herb, you know, Herb wanted me on the band. I was the, the rhythm was the right sound for him. And uh, and I was just starting to do a lot of studio work. And, and I was questioning whether I should, you know, work with another gig on the road, you know. And, but I wound up... Uh, I wound up doing one gig with him because he never really heard me play. All of, uh, Nick Ciroli, you remember Nick, the drummer? Oh Nick yeah, was, I, I worked with him a bunch. Yeah, with Lenny Morgan and Super Steve. Yeah, and 
uh, Pat Senator was playing bass on the, the they had, they, they did, they hadn't done any, Herb, had, he didn't do any uh, live performing until about five years after he had the hit records, you know, but uh, so he put a band together and Bob Edmondson was on it, the trombone player. And uh, so that, that all came together and uh, I stayed with Herb for, I know the band kind of fell apart just before 19, uh, just before 1970, I guess it was, he's 60. Anyway, uh, but then Herb re reorganized later on and he would always, you know, usually call me back. And anyway, so it, I've done a lot of things, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't want to do anything. I was opposed to doing any commercial music, but uh, when I got that first check from a tune that uh, we got back from the, the first tour uh, and it was go up in San Francisco and uh, on the plane coming back, Herb asked me, uh, he called me when we arrived back here and, and he called me one day and he said, John, he said, I have the album. We finished the whole album. And he said, I, I can use one more tune on it. And he said, why don't you write something? You know, because <laughs> he wanted me to stay with the band, you know. And and I said, okay. So I wrote some tune uh, one day and brought it over. And he said, great. So we'll put it on the album. And I know about like four months later, I went to the mailbox and opened up a, a royalty check. And I could, it's like like about thirty or $40,000. You know? So, and I always told everybody I couldn't take that music seriously, but that's when I started taking it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway. Yeah, but we're still, we're, we're still good friends. We talk, you know, at least every couple of weeks, uh, Herb was he was a great guy to work for you know he's he's a good guy well you know obviously he you know he he's you know you could write he he saw that you were a great asset to what he was doing and i know we've talked a lot over the years yeah. and um and you know and when he was kind of building a and m records and all the various people he had you know you were uh, he was you were somebody that he you know, wanted your opinion and all this stuff. And oh, yeah. And you told me once about how, like, Sergio Mendez, you know, he'd already done Brazil 66. Yeah. That was one of his big hits for AM Records. And you guys went down to Brazil, I think. Yeah. This is a story I remember you telling me where you got you and, and Herb and Sergio went down to Brazil looking for material for the next Brazil 66. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you were like in some suite in a hotel and you had like Javon and Milton Nascimento and, and Yvonne Leans and all these guys who were kids and they were coming in, like showing yeah. you guys tunes, you know, like playing tunes for you, for you. To yeah. Get well, we, it was, that was in 1969, I think. 1960. Yeah, I mean, and Dory Kaimi and, uh, and even. Yeah, that's, that's how I met. Concerts, I, right. 
I, I met Dory down there at that time, you know. Right. Dory was the only one that could speak English really well. Of course, Sergio was there. But uh, so Dory and I were, we we just like, uh, he, he, he calls me, you know, he's back in Brazil now. He's been back there about eight years, you know. But he calls me free, real frequently. He, he called me uh, on my birthday and called me a couple of weeks before. And he, he says, Pisano, he said, he calls me, Pisano, you, you are my best friend in America. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he always says it. But um, actually, I worked with Sergio. I did three albums with Sergio before he joined a before he joined a and m it was for atlantic records uh-huh. so i did i i did about four albums with him and then uh, oscar came in and joined the band and and you know and joined sergio right but uh, uh anyway so that was another that was another kick you know working working with Sergi and and meeting all those brazilians man you right. know and that's been a big part of your playing you know in your career and your world view since right i yeah. mean I, from yeah. what i know of you you know and i think i know you about as well as almost anybody and that's like a thing that you really you know your bands have always had that feel, and you're 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 one of the guys. Yeah, that, yeah. That's you know, my Diana Crawl got you to come and just play rhythm guitar on that live in Paris. You know, I mean. Yeah. So, hey John, looking looking back over your career, is there moments that you can think of now that have become? When you tell the stories to people, they're like blown away. They've become huge history moments for other people. But for you, it's just, you know, you played with Joe, you did, you played for the president, you did all these amazing things. Looking back now, did you realize at the time that you were doing those things that were that huge? Or it was just another day on the job? Well, looking, uh, yeah, at the time it was a, uh, you know, it, it, it there was so much of that going on in my life. I mean, I I enjoyed it, and uh, I was lucky to be there. But I, uh, but when I I look at some of the things, I was just talking. You know, how what a, uh, this last year has been so terrible and such a downer. You know, and uh, just it's it's been so depressing. You know, and and I. The first thing that really hit me was not doing guitar night and not playing with other other people, and it's still I miss it terribly. You know that that was one of the joys of my life. You know, playing with people because uh, that that's been your whole life, right? It's been my whole yeah. It was my whole life. You know. Yeah. And then Bruce came in. And he <laughs> took all my work, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you, you and you and Joe? Did you guys tour? Do a lot of tours together? Uh, Joe and I. Yeah, Joe Pass. Yeah. Well, we used to get together, and uh, actually, Joe Joe is always traveling. Uh, he's he's traveling as a soloist after that time, but. 
whenever he came in town, he'd call me and I had to make pasta for him, you know, <laughs> and he, and he, he'd be in, we'd be in the kitchen here. You know, I was living in this house at the time. Uh, and, and he's in the kitchen and he's like my cleanup guy. He's cleaning the pots and everything else. <laughs> using You know, and wiping off and everything. And then, then he looked, he said, you're not going to put, you're not going to put any onions in the sauce. I said, Joe, you know, I never do, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, uh, and, uh, Frank Potenza at the time was, was kind of tight with Joe and, uh, Potenza would get these care packages from his family back in, uh, the back East. And, uh, they would be like, you know, Italian stuff like provolone and all these uh, pieces of cheese. And, and so he, he would bring all that stuff over when Joe was here and we'd all sit down and, and be real Italians, you know. <laughs> it, it sounds like you guys were pretty tight, pretty good mates back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Joe would spend a lot of time back here, even though he was traveling and we would get together frequently. Uh, I, re I, I can just remember because my memory, like I say, wasn't, but I can still remember when Joe got up. He was at Synanon when I, uh, I met, I first met him, you know, and, uh, and they had a pretty good band there. You know, Charlie Hayden was uh, at Synanon at the same time. And we and I used to go there on. I think they had a jam night. I think it was like Thursdays, and I and that's how Joe and I started hanging from uh, at, at that point. And then when he moved out, uh, it was interesting. I, I got this from and and Joe. We were around a lot. Uh, Joe was always. Not that he was instigating it, but uh, his first wife, her name was Allison. And she told me at one point, she said, you know, she because uh, Joe being an addict all his life, you know. For those of you who don't know, Synanon was like a rehab place back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Where, junkies and other people yeah and clean up so I, i'm sorry to interrupt but you know that's oh well that's good i i you know i would i knew that you guys would know it yeah uh sitting on was but i do remember the memory of uh when we were putting together uh the four django album i remember us getting together at the the house that he lived with uh 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 Allison and uh I remember sitting like on it was in Santa Monica and it was sitting on the on the porch and and putting together some of the charts you know and I, I still remember that we there are a couple of tunes on there that we worked out these crazy harmonies with the two guitars you know and uh, when the album was released, the mixer left out my parts. You know? <laughs> no <laughs> oh. way. Yeah. But then years later, when they re-released the album, 
they remixed it. And I, I forget the guy's name, but he was back East at the time. And he called me to ask some questions. And I said, by the way, you know, and he remixed it and, and actually put the, the parts in, but they're not, there aren't a lot of them around, you know, and there were, well, there were only two or three tunes, you know, right. it, in the beginning of uh, that, he he where he plays a uh, Django, you know, ba da 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 da. Yeah, we had that in little tight clusters, and it was really nice, you know. But uh, anyway, hey. I was uh, really to pl uh, to play with Joe was such a joy, you know, and then we would. Uh, A lot of experience. Joe was, he was hilarious. I have, I have tapes uh, that were started by uh, his, the producer of uh, just the dialogue that Joe used to, used to put out at the, you know, to the audience. And I remember like, for, for instance, and I have, I have stuff like this on, on tape in Japan and he was saying all kinds of shit because they half the people couldn't understand them anyway. And everybody, you know, and, and Joe, Joe said, well, we're going to play a drum solo and uh, we're going to do this drum solo now. And it's going to be very, it's going to be kind of short. He said, cause the drummer has to go to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> and I don't, I don't know how many people really <laughs> heard it, but it was, so I, I have, probably a couple of hours of, of, of different things. He, he was really hilarious on the, on the microphone. He was funny and he'd come out with like real outrageous stuff. And like, like as if you're just hanging, talking, like we are, you know, yep. to the audience. And, uh, but, but that was, uh, that was a great time. What, John, what did, what did you learn playing with Joe? What was some of the things you took away from playing with someone like that? What, uh, from what, playing with with Joe Pass, what did you learn? What was some of the things, or how did your playing change playing playing with someone like Joe Pass? Well, the most I got from it is I couldn't play that way. <laughs> 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 but as a matter of fact, one day I'm going to put a a side on. I have a lot of stuff that we uh, like from performances that we we did. You know, Joe. I, I, I didn't have enough courage to play a solo on the bandstand for the first 10 years that I worked played with him, you know, understandable. But he would, he would, he would come, he'd be playing. And uh, there's a couple of things around uh, in, in, uh, in, in Tokyo where he, he, he'd be coming around and he'd come over to me and he's come on. Come on. You know? And so we started playing. That's when I started playing. Things. And, it was it. There was some nice stuff in there. I'd be I'm proud of it, you know. Yep. Oh, but wow. uh, I'm still learning, uh, listening to Joe's stuff and trying to figure out how he did all that stuff. He was uh, he was just amazing, you know. Yeah, you, you guys, Such. you guys complemented each other really well. You were a great support team for him and. Obviously, you knew where to sit with his playing, and well, yeah, I I just uh, a lot of 
people compliment my accompanying and I never I never thought much about it. I just did it kind of naturally. And now that I listen to some things, like if I listen to some things that I'm doing with Joe, it's like I got I got the thing that right at you know the little spaces that need a little chunk, you know, or a rhythm or some kind of a rhythm. Uh, and uh, that's what I with my students. I I kind of. I kind of give them that clue that, you know, you have to listen when you're accompanying. Uh, you have to, you have to listen to the people that you're playing with and it doesn't happen too often, you know, in real life, you know, and I feel badly for some of the, some of the students, they come in and they're, they're playing. And I, I always, I always, uh, give me uh, what to do you know right i say they uh, about playing with piano players you know and you know piano players are all over the place just having you know and especially a student you know because all they want to do is play a lot of notes and i said tell tell the instructor whoever it is i said or i'll call them and tell them you guys share courses. Otherwise, you know, you have, you have that you, they're taking something away from you because you have to experience that, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, personally, you know, I mean, I, I know I'm not talking out of school. I, I knew you, I knew, I knew Joe really well, you know, yeah. I mean, not, obviously not like you or Frank, but I hung out with him a lot and played with him a lot. And, you know, one thing about Joe was he was kind of uh, apathetic. You know, a lot of times he just he just played great and he didn't care, you know. And, I mean, I, th I really yeah. think, you know, hearing the band with you, both the For Django and then the later band you did together with Jim and Colin Bailey. Yeah. I mean, and those records, it's very obvious to me that the arrangements and the the framing of his playing was a lot of you. It's, you know, I mean, and Joe would have just like, he would play a tune and play another tune and play, he'd be happy to play like six tunes in a row exactly the same way. Yeah. But, but those records, a lot of what happened in the magic in him to me is that you actually put the care in to remind him to like, you know, okay, you play great, but there's this other part of music called arranging and, yeah. you know, and, and contrast and stuff that, Joe really never seemed to really be that interested in that part of it. I mean, he was just such a brilliant player and the music just flowed out of him. Yeah. And, and there were, I mean, like he, I was on the road with him and, you know, I'm, I'm on the road with my L5. He's got his 175. Right. And we go to check in. It was like, remember PSA that, that crazy airline that we, yeah, yeah, sure. And like, and of course we'd get to the gate and they'd look at us and they go like, yeah, we need your, you can't bring your guitar on the board. And like, I'm like, I've got this L5 and I'm hugging <laughs> it like it's my woman, you know, because it is. And I'm like, no, you can't take this. No, 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 no. You know, and I mean, I've got to take it on. I've got to take it on. You're going to break it. You're just not going to have. And like, uh, and I had a hard case, right? Yeah. And I somehow managed to like be a big enough jerk so they didn't want to deal with me anymore. They just let me on. And then yeah. Joe was after me and he had like a vinyl gig bag, right? 
<laughs> and they said, you can't bring that on. And he said, okay. And he just gave it to him. <laughs> I remember at the baggage carousel watching that thing come down the thing, you know, and a suitcase kind of fall oh over. And he didn't get, that was Joe, right? I mean, he was. Oh, yeah. You know, he, uh, yeah, he, he just, he, he, I remember one time his nail, just before we're going on stage and his nail had a, a split in it and you know he used to use his nails and and so i see him with crazy glue and he's pouring it on his finger because the nail was cracked but you know what that does your your nail is glued to your finger and you know and he i said joe what the fuck are you doing <laughs> ah, that's all right you know it's n- nothing bothered him it's just like you're saying you know he would just go straight ahead you know yeah yeah, I mean, but you know, I mean, you know, you you listen to him play, and, and oftentimes he'd play three or four songs the exact same tempo and the exact same key, the exact oh, same yeah, yeah. way. You know, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, whereas like with when I saw him with you and your band, that never happened. You know, there was always well, tempos changed, keys changed, arrangements were happening. Well, no, I mean, it was it's just like attention to a certain detail. Yeah. That as brilliant as he was, that was one thing that kind of, he, maybe it didn't elude him or he just didn't care, one way or the other, but yeah. it was not happening until you really provided that. And yeah. and we have you to well, thank for that, you know, variety of his playing because he's, he's just such a brilliant player. Well, have you ever heard the duo album that we did? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But there weren't very many of those made. They're, they're really kind of scarce you know but uh what was that called duets it was just called duets yep yeah uh you can see it online there it's funny uh, it's amazing how uh the old discs are getting real expensive you know <laughs> but uh yeah uh I'm trying. I'm trying to think of his name that was producing Joe at the time, and it was his idea to do it. You know, uh, the producer. He kept on talking about it, so we we went in one day. We went in the studio. It was in L.A. And I remember that was in 1991 because I had just met my wife, Jean, and I remember she came to that session. But I remember, most of all, I can still remember walking after the we were there all day just playing a bunch of shit, you know, and and I didn't know what the hell he was gonna, you know, the the producer, how how he was gonna get any anything out of it, you know, there was just a mishmash of all things, and and what the his idea was to they, there was a screen, it was one of the studios that used to line up the music and uh, sound soundtracks with with movies and stuff like that i can't remember the name of it but anyway it's not important and uh i i what i do remember was after the session walking down the street i can still visualize it and we both got to go then we're walking to the car and and Joe looked at me. 
He said, we just walked out. He says, what the fuck was that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, but the guy mixed up the stuff, you know, and, and did, and made it, it kind of fits together. He, he, he uh, made it a nice, it's an interesting album. It's a little disjointed in places, but uh, there are some nice things that happen on it, you know. He wanted to be something free. In fact, he was flashing on the screen. That's how I was talking about. Uh, he said, what I want you guys to come in is I'm going to flash pictures on the screen and and just play what you feel like playing to it, what what inspiration it gives you, what, it, you know. And, uh, but we didn't, Joe couldn't figure that one out. He, he's, lo he's looking and he said, I don't want to, he said, what, what is this? A bunch of trees. He said, well, I, that doesn't inspire me. He said, I ran into one the other day. You know? <laughs> yeah. Joe is a terrible driver. too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess that, that kind of, yeah, <laughs> I remember, you know, when he used to come to San Francisco when I was a kid and I'd hang out with him you know, because he'd play with like either Ella or Oscar or just solo at the Fairmont yeah. Hotel. He would leave his guitar at night up against the wrought iron air railing in the in the showroom. You know, yeah. he would just like leave it there just and go there. up, you know, and he'd come back and get it when he'd start the next night, you know. And of course the Mater D or the room manager hated it because he was worried that you know, the guys cleaning up would break his guitar and then he'd Yeah, yeah, oh right. Well Joe used to do that. He yeah. he he would do uh yeah, I I remembered a lot of things like that, you know, that he yeah. just whatever happens, oh, that's gonna be okay. You know. <laughs> yeah. Glue on his finger, you know, it's yeah. okay. He glued two fingers together, you know. <laughs> that's all right, I'll play with three fingers. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, obviously, I mean, for, for the people who are listening, who, who have been living in a cave and don't know, I mean, you run guitar night, LA jazz guitar, whatever jazz guitar night for 22 years, almost 23 now. Right. And, uh, yeah. and yet it has a history before that, right. At Dante's, there was kind of a guitar night that inspired you to start it. I'm assuming. Yeah. That was inspiration. It was that, it was at, uh, at, at Dante's, that's that's where it started, uh -huh. and uh, Bob Bain was uh, he was one of the instigators. And the first one they had, for, there were two of them. One of them had George Van Epps, and they even had uh, uh, a, a nylon string player occasionally. And there would just be a lot of guitars, and it, it turned to be a good turned out to be a good hang to have you know a guitar hang, because and, and it makes sense because guitar players always hang out, you know. I, I think have you ever noticed like other guys in the band, trombone players, or they they they're a little pissed off about it. Why are you guitar players always hanging out, you know? But there's a reason because. You know how are two two piano players going to play together unless they find a house with two pianos in it? You know, I mean the guitar is always and it can be a rhythm instrument or it could be a solo instrument. So that's that's why the hang, you know. 
yeah. makes a lot of sense. And then, and then there was Joe did it for Joe did it for a while too, right? Wasn't he part of the? Dungeon? Oh yeah, yeah. He did. Uh, he did for a while. and and even uh, one of the last guys that was there, Lenny Bro. Yeah, was was working when actually uh, the time that he. Uh, it was right around the time that he died, you know, they, uh, yeah, I got to meet Lenny in 1960. He was working at, uh, uh, Shelley's manhole and we wound up hanging, hanging out a lot, you know, and, and usually we'd, we'd be, playing until four in the in the morning you know he'd be up here and uh but he was just an amazing guy with all of you know some of the things the harmonics that he did and and the the, the beauty in his playing you know it was, it was really great the great soloist but you know talking about joe again if you want to hear one more story, if we we were up in San Francisco working at uh, what was it? Is it a woman's name? Is a jazz club that was there for years. In in San Francisco, hometown. I mean, really? Uh, was it Christos? Was it uh, a woman's name? Yeah, yeah, I remember. Well, anyway, Monty, you remember Monty Budwig? Sure. Monty was playing bass with us, and we were staying at the this hotel that was the best hotel in the area, and it was uh, up on a hill. Yeah, and, Mark Hopkins probably, or the Fairmont, one of those two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so... Uh, Joe had uh, had uh, slipped one time uh, a couple of weeks before then and and broke his uh, you remember when he broke his ankle or something like that and he had a he had a crutch that you know to walk around and everything and it pissed him off he hated it you know <laughs> and anyway he he wound up uh, and and he was like I say he wasn't a very good driver so this one night we're going to the gig and we're recording that night, you know, actually it's an album. And, uh, so he got in the car and it was raining and, and you couldn't see, you know, the three of us are in the car and Monty was in the back with his bass in the back of the seat kind of laying on him. And, and Joe forgot to make the turn to the street. He had to make a left turn and all of a sudden, he's, I said, Joe, you, you know, you told oh, yeah, uh, no problem. So he pulls over to the right and proceeds to, to, to make a U-turn. And there was a car that hit us, you know, <laughs> as he's making a U-turn. And, and Joe was, I don't know, the, the I think that the guy that hit us was coming to the club to hear us because <laughs> there weren't any bad words or anything. It was obviously Joe's, you know, and are, are uh, you talking about Yoshi's that was over in the East Bay Yoshi's is that was, was it Yoshi's the club Yoshi's? No, no, no. 
this the club was close to the hotel we were staying. I remember a big white hotel into the mountains behind it. Right. Wow. It was a. We had worked there several times. Anyway, so we we were doing and we were doing an album that right, right, right. We, uh, which was released. So Joe, uh, he was pissed because he had his raincoat on, and the his door was hit, so he couldn't open his door, and he couldn't. He couldn't get his raincoat. <laughs> he he was stuck stuck in a car, you know. So he's conversing with this guy in the rain through the. I guess he opened the window, but he couldn't get out, and he was so pissed. So it took a little while, but we got to the gig, and there they all ready. They they've been waiting for us, and and Joe just got up and played his. You know, he would always start the the set with the, uh, about three or four solos, you know, by himself, you know, without the band. So he got up there and just played the shit out of the, all, you know, after going through that harassment, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't phase him at all. You know, yeah. I'm sorry. It did, John, it didn't phase him at all. He just seemed to play no, better. That, that's that's like like Bruce Bruce was saying he would just he would just get up and do things you know and yeah wow. I mean so was Colin on that record too uh, yeah Bailey yeah Colin I'm just trying to find it here on my yeah and uh, it was shortly before Monty was dying at the time you know Monty Budwig right. he was not in good shape you know. John, you you uh, definitely okay. okay I'm, I'm I'm kind of got something here. Yeah, it's live at Yoshi's. Is that is that possibly the one? That's the one I remember. It probably was Yoshi's, so okay. maybe it wasn't. Well, that was all the way over in in uh, Oakland, in Berkeley, Oakland at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a hotel like if you looked? I, I imagine it was oh, north. So you were, you were up in the Claremont Hotel, right? And you yeah, went, and you that's, went, yeah. that's, that's San Francisco. That's the East Bay, right? Yeah. I remember that. I remember when you guys played there. I think I was there one of those nights. You know? Oh, wow! Yeah, the, yeah. the Claremont. That sounds right. Yeah. Right. That, that's the hotel over, kind of in the right underneath where UC Berkeley is. You know, in the yeah, mountains. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that was great, man. And. I remember Monty was sick at the time, you know, and yeah. and I used to work a lot with Colin myself, you know, because he was living up in the Bay Area at the time. Yeah, I haven't talked to Have you talked to Colin lately? Yeah, I've talked to him lately. Uh, he's living near Oxnard now, you know, over he, by the beach. He, he's up you know, yeah, kind of he's, near where Bob Bain was living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a drag that the way all has turned out. Like my favorite bass player. Uh, Jim, 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 Hugh, uh, Hewitt, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't play anymore, I guess, you know. Really? Huh. Uh, he, this was a couple of years ago because he, uh, there was no work around, you know. Yeah. And, and he was working so infrequently that he couldn't keep his chops up. 
but he really played the right notes. <laughs> you know, I loved his playing. I mean, still is, you know. Of course, nobody's playing any notes anymore. You know, I mean, we're all playing by ourselves in our houses. You know? Yeah, no, the bass players are busy in the corner playing their own solo by themselves. You know, right. <laughs> you know, they're doing all this shit. I do. Doesn't make any sense. Nobody's playing together. You know, right, right. who'd who'd have thought? With I mean, you guys, the both of you guys have come through a time in history which will more than likely never be like that ever again. And it's going to change the face of music and the way we play and all that. You guys come through that time where you learnt on the job, you learn on the gig. Exactly. And now it's yeah. all, we're learning, everyone's learning in schools, learning off videos and learning off YouTube and stuff like Everything's changed and we're, yeah, we're probably going to miss out on a lot of amazing, amazing stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. And there, you know, the sad part is, you know, and you know that Bruce too, uh, you, you've, since you've been teaching down there, I bet you've run into a, a, a whole bunch of young guitar players that are, that are really talented, you know, yeah. and, and where the hell are they going to, what are they going to do with it? You know? Well, in my opinion, it's going to be a new world and they're going to do something with it. You know, I mean, I'm not worried about them because they're talented and they have integrity and they have a lot of energy and enthusiasm, just like we do. And, you know, I mean, that's the beautiful thing. It's like the enthusiasm thing. I, I just want to tell a little story about John here. Um, I, um, this is about five years ago. Of course, it could be 50 by now. You know, I mean, I don't have a good... Okay. But, but, but okay. So I'm, I'm one day and I call him. I said, John, man, I found the, the weirdest thing. There's these picks, you know what I mean? And, I mean, they're just weird. I don't know that I like them. I don't know that I don't like them. It's just like I've never felt anything. And there, there was this kind of pick that had like rubberized things that you hold on to in various yeah. different thicknesses. Yeah. But they were kind of like this weird sort of hybrid thing, you know, like a, like a rubber. I mean, I'd probably have some in my, in my drawer here somewhere, you know, like a rubberized yeah. grip, but then the pick was kind of part of it. It was like melted into the pick. Right. Yeah. Weird shit. Somebody gave me one and I thought, wow, this is kind of a cool idea, you know, yeah, especially for people who drop their picks or whatever, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I, and here I am, John is, you know, in his 80s at the time. I'm I'm well into my 50s, 60s at the time, you know. And yeah. John, there's this like weird pick I found, da 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 da, you know. And the first thing he said is, come on over, bring it over. We <laughs> <laughs> were super excited about it. Next thing you know, we're both ordering a shitload of them. Of course, we neither of us really play them now. But, you know, I mean, this kind of enthusiasm for the music that we have. The kids have too. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to change. That's the beautiful thing. And yes, the environment that they play in and the world that they will inherit and the way they'll work it out is just going to have to be the way they work it out. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. with, we can't control that. If we were in control of it, that would be great, but we're not, you know, but we can't, what well, we are in control of sharing our knowledge with them and sharing our experiences with them and just telling yeah. them what it was like, not that it's going to be that for them, but so that they can kind of have a feeling of where it all came from. Yeah. 
they they decide where it's going to go. One thing I have noticed is there's this weird thing about like uh, a lot of my students lately have, have, you know, they'll play something really great. You know, I mean, for especially for their age, I mean, like, whoa, and especially for the level of experience they've had in the real world in terms of playing in bands, playing, you know, comping for people, all that kind of stuff. They yeah. don't have a lot of that experience, but they play this really great stuff, right? And then I ask them what they're feeling about it is, and almost every one of them wants to say, oh, it wasn't thoughtful enough. You know, I wasn't present or, you know, these kind of vibey, strange words. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're 19 years old. This is is when you're supposed to blast everything you can against the wall and see what sticks. This is not the moment to start editing. You know, this is the moment to just be free and try everything and live in the world and do it. I mean, actually, there is never a time not to be that way, but especially yeah. when you're 19. And I said, well, who, who puts this like too many notes or not thoughtful enough in your fucking head? You know what I mean? And so I've come up with like a phrase like, don't edit it until you own it. You know, I mean, like it's, you know, life, music is, is experimentation. It's learning. It's like it's it's alive yeah it's an organism and you know for us to to walk in starting about like oh i can't do that or i can't do that well we're never going to get to this place to find the thing we need you know Mm -hmm. and and so i'm just so tired of hearing that you know of these people too many notes no it's just the amount of notes you play yeah (laughs) you know i'm sorry if you think it's too many notes then don't do it again but you know you learn from that, but don't let somebody else tell you that because you played just the amount of notes you needed to play in that moment to do what you needed to do. And I'm just, I'm just so disappointed with the way the world has gotten into this vibey safe. I mean, okay. Jim Hall was 80 years old when he said that, and he lived that life of all that experimentation and brilliance to get to that point. We're not supposed to play like Jim Hall at 80. Mm. We're supposed to play like ourselves at the current age we're at. You know, and, 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 and not that Jim Hall isn't brilliant. He was, but Barney Kessel was brilliant at, you know, at, at his later age. And Joe Pass was too. And so was John Coltrane and Charlie Parker at their later, you know, I mean, when they died. It's like, stop it. Let's all just go for the feeling and the, what we're trying to say in the music and figure it out from there and stop with this, like, I'm not thoughtful. I'm not edited. <laughs> I'm not I mean, that's just like, it's like, what do you, we start out already cutting. I mean, it's like, like they say about Jewish people, you know what I mean? They say Jewish people are really optimists. And they ask why. It's just because before they know how big it's going to be, they cut a piece of it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you know, the, whole, the whole thing about playing jazz uh, to me is, uh, and it's it's easy to explain, but. 
you have to it's 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 a language that that you have in your head it's like another language because you have to have it in your brain you have to have the tunes in your brain because how are you going to improvise and play something that is connected to the music and that's important if you're playing on a standard or something you know you got the changes right but they're right here a lot, a lot of the students they don't that music is uh, it's not the way i learned it or the, maybe the way you learned it there was good when you were young there was still some good music around wasn't there yeah you know i i i grew up through all of the i grew up through all all of the movies you know i mean i was i remember laura i remember my mother she wasn't a vocalist but she she could you know she would know know the melody you know and and all of the 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 great standards of same way you know and it, you you have to have a, a that that the memory of all those things and retain uh songs and 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 know how to move on them without without having to search the thing is that it should flow you know but but you have to have that that behind you i think it just can't well yes i agree with you 100% and actually much of what i in my as you know in my philosophy and teaching is is like if you're going to play on a song you need to know the song yeah yeah that's and, the first thing and 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 the more you know the song and the better you know the song the better you will play on it and yeah. you know I mean, so if that's not your top priority then you realize you're setting yourself up for some sort of problem down the road because everything's yeah. going to sound the same. I mean, it's the old thing of like, hey, if all you got's a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> you know, and, and so you know, it's it just becomes a thing where, yeah, I mean, if you're going to play a song, learn the song. I mean, that that just, I mean. Yeah. Of course, that was impressed upon me in my early years because of the guys I played with, and it was it was a prerequisite. If you don't know the song, you can't play. Yeah. You know, we're not going to let you play on this song till you know it, and and to prove you knew it, you had to know the harmony. You, of course, you had to know the melody, and and okay, you know that, then you will let you play on it. Sure, yeah. you're cool. And so, um, and I think you know, a lot of jazz has moved into like a, you know, figure out how to, you know, like work the little sections together and play the things, you know what I mean? And that is true. I mean, a lot of that is true, but when, but you know, the guys they learned that from knew the song, <laughs> you know, yeah. the guys they analyze that from is particularly the guy here in the picture behind me, you know, Charlie Parker, you know, he knew the song. So everything yeah. he did was relating to the song and everybody's taking, well, no, that just relates to the chord that happened in that moment in the song. No, that's not really the truth. Sorry. You know, and, and, it, and it leaves you with this sort of like, like I say, you've got a hammer and everything's going to look like a nail. Yeah. Well, you're a perfect example of knowing, you know, you know, songs when you play them. Yeah. Uh, uh, of all all the people I've worked with, I I feel because I don't know I don't I, I I fake through a lot of stuff. You know, I guess we all have a chance to do that. But 
I I can hear in in my head and and for watching maybe when I was uh, 15 years old watching a movie and the and the song was played on the radio I can still remember where you know and sing in my head and go with the changes and remember it in time so it takes all of those things to really to really play you know at, at, at as as good as you can you know and the more you tighten it all up it's going to only going to make you better you know but i don't know i don't know if everybody if i like got of a out of 100 guitar players of students how many really have the ability to do all that stuff you know i mean the thing that goes on when you stop and think you're in the middle of a of a phrase and you're thinking about where where this chord is going to go and also creating a melody in your head that you 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 think the you think what you're going to play before you play it, don't you? Right. Yeah. You know, sometimes you take a chance because you know it's uh, the right fret. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know you're going to get something out of it, or maybe, like Joe used to say, if you play a wrong note, it was okay because it gives you an idea to. You don't want you don't want to you don't try to cover it up because you'll make it more obvious that it was a wrong note. You make something out of it. You know. But but your mind, your brain is an amazing thing, but it's not only hearing, creating the movement, knowing, thinking ahead, thinking right at that moment, and also remembering what you just played. And that's just one part of it, because your fingers have to move too, and your brain is doing that too. So there's a lot that goes into it, you know. Some of these kids today, I assure you, you know, there's a, a handful on, on YouTube that can can uh, play so fast. Not that it's the way I, you know, but, but technically, uh, that, that, you ever, what's this kid, Mancuso? Oh. He plays, he plays with his two fingers. fingers. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, he play, he can play so fast, he makes Pat Martino sound, sound like an old man, you yeah. know? <laughs> By the way, I wonder how Pat is doing. I Does haven't anybody... heard anything about yeah. it. I, mean, I know he was not well for he has not been well for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I need to reach out to him. I yeah. How old how old's Pat now? In his seventies, I think. Maybe close to yeah, yeah. probably someplace in his eighties, yeah. Really? Okay. You know. I mean, I realize that my whole perspective, you know, I mean, again, when I think of you or I think of Pat, I think of when I first met you and, you know, we were young and, you know, it's like, yeah. God, you know, that's what happens to you when you get older, you know, but. Uh, yeah, well. Born in 44, so he would be, uh, he's 76 now. Uh, I thought he was. I thought he was older for some reason. Wow. Um, he's had, you know, he's about the same age as George. George Benson. They're they're that same generation. That right. you know, next generation after, you know, Joe and Barney and yeah. Yeah. John, did you play with Pat Martino? 
Yeah, we must have. He he would come to the house a lot. I'm sure. I I don't remember sitting down and playing, but I know that that we did. Yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> yeah, Pat Martino was a. He used to come over about once a week when he was teaching in town here. You know, uh, I don't know what years that, but he he would. Uh, I remember. I remember. I was playing with Oscar Castroneves and do, with a Brazilian band. You know, uh, you know, Oscar was the one that played with Chico. And uh, so one one night, all I remember, I never met Pat back east, uh, Pat Martino, but I do remember a picture of him with those glasses on, and and he looks like a like some kind of sinister character, you know, and all of a sudden I'm playing with Oscar Castroneves one night and I look several tables and I look and I said, Oh my God, it's him. You know, it's he scared me, you know, but he was, he was a sweet guy and, and we started hanging out and he needed a pasta fix about every couple of weeks and would come over and we would just hang and, and do some playing, you know, but, uh, then after he had, well, it was just before he had to go back to have the surgery on his brain. And we were supposed to get together one night and he called me a few days before and he said, John, he said, I, I can't make it because I have to go back East. And then he had that surgery that he said he uh, was told that he forgot everything about, you know, remember all that was going around. He just forgot yeah. everything. Well, it was about a year later. And I, I was in that part of the uh, someplace in the East and Pat was working at a club. Uh, and I thought he probably wouldn't remember me, you know, and all of a sudden he plays a couple of tunes and then he, he gets the microphone. He said, ladies and gentlemen, one of my buddies, John Pisano is here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He's an amazing character. Yeah, the, the you know another thing I, I passed through my mind a few times about Joe Passan, and I'll tell you, it I I wake up. This started a couple of months ago. I don't know why, but I suddenly was been looking for stuff, and the last gig that Joe and I worked, Joe Pass, was. Uh, was up north and then after we he went uh, he went uh into canada and did some solo stuff and and came and came back but because he went up further north and he didn't have uh, he wrote us a check and mailed it to us you know or handed it to i don't know but i i opened up the envelope and it, there's a note in there and i I never had a note from Joe, you know, I mean, and I remember exactly what it said, how much he enjoyed playing with me. And, and he, he goes on and on and saying, you, you know, saying good things about me, which is something I can't find the guy them thing. I'm going nuts, you know, <laughs> but at, at the end of it, he said, he said, you are, you want you're you're the the guy that I would like to play most with, you know, and he said 
in, in those words, you know, he liked to play with me most, except, but then he put in, except for Roy a uh, Acuff. <laughs> Roy Acuff. <laughs> but I'm hoping in all this shit that I have here, you know, uh, that in some of these boxes I could find it, I, I, I might've lost it, but it's something I, I really would like to have, you know? <laughs> wow. John, that's, that's got to feel pretty good. That must've felt pretty good to get that from Joe. Yeah. And I put it, I probably put it in a real safe place. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I mean, you know, but the proof is in the pudding. I mean, he, you know, you played with him, in the 60s and then when he put the band back together in the 90s or i guess it was the 90s you know you were doing all that work together you know i mean the truth speaks for itself john you know what i mean it's like yeah. you know with note or no note you know he wouldn't you know he could pick anybody he wanted he had you know he could do what he wanted and he did what he wanted and yeah. you were part of it and and in fact in my opinion as someone who knew him well and and was a big fan, you know, yeah. still am. I see all of the great things you brought to that and made him so much better for your being a part of it, you know, and that is, that is truly, you know, like one of the most, you know, admirable qualities of any musician or human, you know, for that matter. So, wow. You know, and, 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 you know, not to just gush all over you, but there was one other story I, I want to bring up because this, and, and, and tell me if I'm telling this wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, but I remember I, and I was at your house um, and we were having dinner and you were talking about Stan Getz, how like you love Stan Getz. You always wanted to play with Stan Getz, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And Stan Getz moves to LA and he gives you a call. And you like really, you know, you're hoping, oh, yeah. oh great, I'm going to work with Stan Getz. This is something I really want to do. And you end up talking to him and he says something like, how come you would never invite me over my over to your house to have pizza or pasta? Something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When are you going to... When are you gonna invite me over for, for pizza? That's right, because, <laughs> you know, that was... A, and uh, and uh, that's the last time I talked to him. I mean... I don't remember anything after that, but yeah, that was good. So Stan gets uh, complaining about John. John. But, but you know what? Excuse me. Just one other thing while I, I lose it is the fact is that I did get a chance to record with him. And it was, but after he was dead, because <laughs> Herb, Herb had done a lot of tracks of him playing. And so there was a spot open on it and I, and, and I had to, and I had, well, he asked me to, to, to fill in there. I don't know if I told you, uh, Herb that story or not. It didn't instigate it, but, uh, so I finally had a chance to record with Stan. Yes. <laughs> this, this seems to be a running theme, John, with, um, are you a hell of a cook? We've yeah, been. it is. It's it's. Oh, it, it, is, it, uh, it is. I'm a I'm a recipient and a, a admirer and a lucky person who's gotten a chance. I can vouch for it. I've eaten. I've spent a lot of time in Italy. Obviously, to be a guitar player and a jazz guitar player, you have to be a bit of an Italiophile. You know what I mean? It's like, 
you're either you're either a brother or you're an Italian. You know what I mean? There's a couple of us Jewish guys, but the rest of them are all Italian, <laughs> black. John, so you know, <laughs> where where in whereabouts is your family from, John? When you go back, uh, well, my family, they were both born in in you know back east. Yep. But uh, my grandfather, one one my one grandfather was born in. Uh, uh, in Sicily, that was my my mother's side. She had to, she had the the. I I don't know that they, they they must have got into some kind of trouble with the mafia or something because the three the three brothers all lived in New York, you know, in the in the, the mafioso days, and then for some reason they all split up. And one of them moved to Louisiana. One of them moved to Los Angeles, and they would be my my uh, grand uncles, you know. And I I could never figure out why that happened, you know. But I sure had. But they were. But on my father's side, it's the same. Uh, they were from around Naples. Yeah. My, uh, yeah. And with. Uh, it was probably about three years ago. I, through circumstances, uh, this uh, Pisano, John, his name is John Pisano, but they their alternate spellings that had an I on the end, Pisani. And he got in touch with me, and he turns out to be a blood relative, and it's a it's a a town called uh, Cortosi or something like that. And so they actually came out and visited, but uh, his, his great, great grandfather and my great, great grandfather were brothers, you know? Wow. So we're, we're, we're cousins in, in blood, you know? So I know that side of the family, the, the other side was, always kind of weird you know all my uncles were nuts you know <laughs> but i love them they but, were all crazy you know <laughs> like none of them are from pisa you know like pisano i mean there's like paisano which means countrymen in italian but pisano is like yeah. Pizzo, you know the town of pisa yeah which that's that's the that's the pronunciation like pisa yeah yeah and yeah. but Pisa is, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's like a that's like up in the the you know the Tuscany coast near yeah. the Isle of Elba and Luca, the that's leaning there. leaning the leaning tower. Right, exactly. Uh, that's further. That's not Naples and just that's not southern Italy. No, you know, no, that's, that's in, you know, inside southern Italy. So I mean, it's like you wonder how that name, you know, whether because so many people when they came to this country, you know, they, you know, they didn't speak English and someone says, what's your name? And you, you know, half the Italians probably said where they were from. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause that's an Italian thing. I mean, when you were, you're over in Italy and you talk to somebody, the you know, very big thing about Italy is like where you're from, you know, yeah. it's, it's even more so than, than the United States. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, so many people with the names of, Di Napoli or Di, you know, Di Pisa or Di, you know, Di Genoa, or, you know, that, that, you know, that wasn't their real name when they got to Ellis Island. They just misunderstood the question yeah, and probably gave where they were from, you know what I mean? And that's why I'm thinking yeah. Pisano, you know, like somebody might've been from Pisa 
That's a great town. I don't know. If well, you know. I think the I think uh, this this uh, cousin of mine, he's working on he's working uh, to find out that if they came from from Pisa, uh, that that the name suddenly wound up in this area. You know, I seem it, to remember even sending you a postcard from Pisa or calling you from Pisa at some point during our long friendship. You know, I was over there and I said. Hey, John. <laughs> now well, I'll keep <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, this, so I, I have a little trouble hearing you. Well, that's okay. I'm not saying anything important. No, when you, that little move the closer to the mic made a difference okay i'm closer now <laughs> oh boy and don't now, get too close yeah now you, have, now you have now you can see me in focus of course everybody who's listening to this won't get a chance to see us but yeah. <laughs> they're considering themselves fortunate right <laughs> uh well anyway what time is it getting it's uh you know four four i think yeah ah uh. john i gotta say mate um it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again and thank you for all that you've done. And it was, it's awesome to hear all the stories. It, I love going back oh, and, and hearing all yeah. about that. There've been, you know, one day I have to write down a lot of the stuff. I know that there are so many things that I forget about. And then all of a sudden I'll say, wow, I remember when I did this, you know? <laughs> okay. I want to finish out with one last thing, yeah. you know, John, you've had a lot of guitars. They've come through your hands, and you still have a lot of guitars. Okay. the um, I'd love to hear about the guitars you have that you have this, like, you know, real connection with. You know what I mean? The, the ones like, you know, wildfires coming, and you just got to grab three or four, which ones they are. But also, I'd love to hear you tell me about a couple that got away, either ones you sold that you wish you had yeah, or yeah. ones that you didn't buy that you wish you had. So can we finish out with a kind of a geeky? Oh, sure. Story? Yeah. Well, the one guitar that I use most of, uh, most of my life uh, when I was doing a lot of jazz uh, was the uh, ES-175. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the, the same fingerboard on it. The one, the ES-175 has a double slash, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, this has blocks. Well, what happened, when I was working with Chico, I don't know if you remember the music that they were playing when Jim was, you know, Jim Hall wrote a lot of it. It wasn't easy shit to step in and, and try to play that stuff, you know. But I put in a lot of hours. But... Uh, and and Jim, I think played played that that music on uh, ES one seventy five, but the uh, the ES one seventy five was a good jazz sound, but I needed more sustain and more clarity, so I I, I took the guitar I, I bought I bought one, and uh, and I used it for a while, and I then I I I, I well anyway. Let me let me backtrack. I had the, this this 175 that I wanted to change the sound by putting an 
ebony fingerboard on it. So I actually had D'Angelico do that for me. And he very rarely did any work on other guitars, but D'Angelico, he liked me. He was a a sweet guy. He liked me a lot because I, my dad used to take me up there, you know, to the shop and he always recognized me and I, I had some work done from time to time. So, so he picks up the, the 175 and, and he's looking at it and I'm spurting off. I want, I want put an ebony fingerboard on this and, and could you do this and, and reshape the neck? And he's, he's look, and looking at me back and he said, what do you, what do you, Tell me, he said, what do you want this piece of shit for anyway? (laughs) 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 And he said, okay, I'll do it. It took about a year for him to get to it, you know, but he's the one that uh, put the ebony fingerboard on it. You've seen that guitar, I think. Oh, yeah, I've played it, yeah. And and that's, uh, that has a lot of sentimental value for a lot of reasons. And and, and it, it works good, you know, it's, it's a a good I still have my I don't I don't use it a lot I still have and it's uh it's my my dad had uh he bought uh an ep, epiphone in in the I don't know if it was a really it might have been in 1946 or something like that. He bought it. It was an it's an Epiphone uh, Deluxe. It's the second one. It's like the L5 in the Epiphone lineup. You know. Uh-huh. Have you ever seen that guitar? It had. Yeah, you, it, I've played it. Yeah, you pulled it, it out. Like, it had a, like a scallop uh, uh, design on the fingerboard. You know, it's like yeah. a, a half. A, I have to look like a, shell, a scallop shell with uh, ridges on it, you know. Uh, you can't see my hands. It wasn't like that. Yeah. Well, not, anyway. Well, that, that uh, I keep, that's under the bed. I, I don't play it a lot. Well, that guitar, I would, be, if I ever had to do anything acoustic, I would, I would have that, you know, yeah. I would I would record with that, but <laughs> going back to Joe Pass, I, I had also uh, uh, an L five that uh, that I I use I bought and uh, the L five was a, it's really a good guitar, uh, but I would uh, if Joe was going to do a session he would and, and wanted to do acoustic he would always you know i'd always bring an acoustic an extra acoustic guitar but i would get my dad's guitar and clean it all up and you know and as happened every time we go to the session and and i'd be play, you know warming up and playing and and joe would be sitting over there and all of a sudden he's looking at me and he he said john he said let me try that guitar, you know. <laughs> and, and I, I handed it to him, and he'd look at me and he'd say, "I'm playing this one." <laughs> he, he wound up playing playing the my dad's guitar all the time, and it was really sweet because my dad was still alive, and Joe had it mentioned on the on the album cover that it was uh, my dad's guitar. You know, I had a chance to show that to him. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Great. Uh, anyway. 
And any guitars that like you played and you wish you'd gotten in, but you never did. You right. know, yeah, I know a guy like you, you've got a lot of guitars. Believe me, I've been hanging out with you for a long time and we yeah. we play great guitars whenever we're at your house. But are there any are there any that kind of like you maybe I'll get oh, I don't get it, and then you like you wish you had or like ones that you kind of got away from you? Well, I never had a chance, but I've every once in a while you'd pick up a guitar, maybe it was your imagination. Like yeah. I remember uh we had there were a bunch of guys with uh Jimmy Weibel uh, instigated a, a whole group of guys that had Boris guitars, right. you know, and that's a pretty damn good guitar. But there was one guitar that I picked up that just, God damn, the sound was like, <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't remember who the guitar, who the guy was, but uh, every once in a while you'll pick up a guitar that you, if you don't own it, Maybe isn't that good. It might have been the room or something. <laughs> but Ron, uh, Ron Anthony's guitar was was a. Did you like that guitar? Did you have a chance? I love that guitar. Yes, but you know, I mean, and I've played a lot of D'Angelicos in my life. Um, it seems like the ones that I like, you know, because I have a friend who collects them in New York, and I've played. You know, he's got like about two dozen of them, and. And I went through them all. Is that, is that the guy that owns a store down there? Back no, 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 it's not Rudy's. It's another guy and yeah. um, private collector. And and I played through them and like one I just fell in love with. And and much like Ron's, the one thing it has in common is it's been played so much. You know, you know this guitar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big. It's not a real pretty thing. It's not new looking just like Ron's, it's been played so much. Yeah. It, it already knows how to sing and you just pick yeah, it up. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's yeah. easy, you know, but yeah, in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Ron Anthony's, I don't know whatever what's happened to it now, but uh -huh. that is a beautiful instrument, you know, and, um, it should be in a uh, museum of D'Angelico's because of, of them, it's it's really a beautiful specimen. I think. Yeah, and a lot because of Ron, because of all the playing he did on it. They, I mean, he spent his whole career on that one guitar. I mean, it's really funny, you know, when you think about it. But like, other than maybe Barney Kessel, yeah, like who played one guitar for forty or fifty years and didn't like you know kind of endorse this company endorse this company and find this and find that yeah 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 switch from switch from a built-in pickup to a floating pickup to an acoustic to an electric you know what i mean like yeah that's a normal progression of a guitar player's sound but then yeah. you like ron anthony who like stayed with that d'angelico the whole time or barney kessel with that es350 pretty much the whole time you know what i mean and um i got i got one guy who He's a different different genre, but Brian May. Yeah, right. Brian May did that. He right? built he built that guitar when he was thirteen Who, with his dad. Who's that? Brian May, the guitarist from Queen. Yeah. Oh, and and yeah, he played. Yeah, and it's a it's a really unique guitar. But he, of course, he you know, I mean, if it was a Les Paul or a Strat, he would be Brian May. You know, I mean, yeah. But but there is a thing about an instrument that just learns to sing. 
you know. Oh but, yeah, oh, it's it's uh, some of those engines that like from the forties, you know, they they've been played enough, especially one. Yeah, if you find a guitar that had been in in the old days, like with a big band before right. amplifiers, and somebody was banging the shit out of it, and those things are really broke, you know. They're they're great. I guess that's kind of like people too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, John, so much, man. For for this is like for me, it's been God. I, well, I, I mean, it's like I'm back back from the pandemic. I mean, just hanging with you like this. This is so. Uh, well, anyway, we'll. Uh, I I just. Uh, hope that everything comes back and we could play together again you know yeah uh who knows this time next year maybe we'll be at the baked potato again you know? right, right or we'll have our own club man you know what i mean all right yeah we'll take maybe. over the world you know what i mean yeah we'll, them. we'll do our own thing <laughs> that's a good idea or just just play together is uh is good enough yeah know? that's true man well i love you john you know that and I'm oh likewise for man. all your wisdom and all your experience and all your insights man thank you yeah well i remember i love you too man i, I remember the first time i met you and it was backstage i was working with joe it might have been a, the place that you were talking about. You you came up, I uh, and I, and and we we were introduced, and and I then after that, uh, you know, I, I'd start seeing you around, and then when you came here and, and took all my work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> John, Speaking a real of, such a pleasure, man. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, man. And thank oh. you, Troy. This has been a great evening for me. Thank this you. Is pretty awesome. John, uh, you take care of yourself because uh, we're going to do this again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Next I'm, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape for an old fucker, you know? <laughs> <laughs> next, next time we'll get that annoying Henderson on the show and, and he'll be a part of it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's Scotty Henderson, that bastard. Yeah, that guy. That yeah. guy. So. John, right, until guys. next time, sir. We will um we will see you really soon. Okay. All Thanks, right. John. Have a good okay. night. Talk to you soon. Okay. okay. Good night. Good night, Troy. Thanks, John. Bye. All right. You're welcome.